0: Heavenly Father, this morning I pray that you would uh, expand our vision of how great you truly are. Lord, as we open your word, I pray that we would be receptive to it, whatever it is that you have for each and every single one of us, that your Holy Spirit would be softening our hearts and opening our ears. Lord, I pray that you would be Uh, opening Pastor Cameron's heart and opening his ears to hear your spirit, that he would be faithful to give the word that you have for us. Lord, I pray that this might be for your glory, that we might see the gospel all the more clearly today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Luke. my name is my name is Cameron, uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, we welcome you. And we're so grateful that you're here. Um, we started a we started a series through the book of Romans last week, and um, I'll, I'll tell you that we, as Pastor Luke and I were talking throughout the week about, let's um, the amount of stuff that's in Romans and our own our own sense of like. How the ministry of preaching is going and all of that, you know. I, we we are always trying to uh, become better communicators of the word of God, and part part of that part of that task of being a, a better and better communi- uh, communicator is knowing what the right information to share is and and how much to share and how much not to share. And, you know, it's always kind of been a funny ha joke about how long I preach, and it is kind of funny ha ha sometimes, but it's also not funny ha ha. Uh, um, and um, and uh, do I do want to uh, do want to be able to um, uh, preach for a responsible amount of time, uh, but at the same time give uh, what I feel like the Lord has brought. And so one of the things that we were talking about is like there's so much here in Romans, and we've we had originally scheduled a series, a sermon series for eight weeks, that we felt like it's putting too much pressure to go through too much material. In a short amount of time. And so we're trying to pack more into it, which is making things longer and just kind of like upsetting the whole apple cart of us even trying to prepare. And so we're going to take a little bit of a slower pace, actually, um, through Romans. And we're going to do a we're going to preach uh, through Romans for eight weeks right now. And then we're going to take a short break for the season of Advent, uh, which is the preparatory season to Christmas. And then we're going to pick Romans back up after the first of the year. Um, and so. Uh, we're able to uh, we're able to deal with it in a little bit more measured manner, and um, and and God willing, um, the Holy Spirit will will uh, transform us as we're engaging with this word here. So, um, so as I said last week, I'm I'm handing out um, I, I I forgot to make the chart this week. And, and some people ask where the gold sticker chart is for bringing their own personal Bibles, like I said there would be last week, because some people brought their own personal Bibles and they wanted to know where the gold sticker chart was. I'm sorry, I will do better next week, right? But would encourage you to bring your own copy of your Bible um, in the paper form, okay? Don't hold up your phone and say, I have my Bible here, right? We want paper, okay? Bring a paper Bible. If you don't have one, uh, and you see one sitting in one of the pews, um, you have, you, have, you have pastoral permission to take that Bible home with you. It is yours now. Write your name in it. Uh, mark it all up. Follow along with us. We want you to be able to have that. Last week, we started in Romans chapter 1. We're going to continue in Romans chapter 1 today. And we started with understanding what Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to the Romans, what his main point was here, what was the main thing that he wanted to communicate, that he was setting out to communicate above all other things throughout the entirety of the lesson or the entirety of the letter. Meaning, if you could take this one little phrase, could you find it weaving its way through the whole letter? And the answer is yes, absolutely. And that phrase is, or the the point of the whole letter is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for the salvation of all that believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to all that believe. That meaning that there every every wall that the world puts up, that you and I even maybe put up between other people and God, any any obstacle that the wall tries to that the world tries to put up between uh, between people and God. That the gospel is continuously and constantly tearing down that wall. And through the righteousness of Jesus Christ is offering salvation to an unbelieving world. Uh, this week we're going to continue in Paul in the same letter, right after where we picked up. We we ended with um, uh, Romans chapter one verse uh, seventeen. We're going to pick up in Romans chapter one verse eighteen, and understand that as we preach through Romans, that we're we're trying as well to help you make. Um, you know, like the, the uh, connect the dots pictures that we do as, as kids, right? Lots of little dots all over and they're numbered and you follow them around and when you complete the whole, when you complete all the connecting the dots, there's a picture that now is perfectly clear and you see the image, right? And Romans is a little bit like that, is like that each kind of sermon or section is a little dot in the picture, right? And if you just take one dot, and you just think of one dot as unconnected from the whole, it maybe may not make sense, or it doesn't it doesn't provide good accurate context. Okay, so understand that we're talking about a progressive argument, so to speak, or a progressive message that works its way through the whole book of Romans. Uh, which means if you're not here, you're going to miss it. I don't know what to tell you. Um, um, and uh, so stick with us as we kind of track or trace the series of uh, messages here. I don't know if this has been true in every generation. I know that it's true in my generation. But we, uh, we tend to, I think we tend to romanticize uh, the generations before us as being, um, as being more moral, as being more ethical, as being more um, uh, like uh, religiously solid you know like well back in my day people didn't skip church on a Sunday morning to watch the Bills play at 9.30am right or we didn't have those we didn't have those problems in society back when I was growing up or um, you know, the greatest generation was the gen. Is, the greatest generation is always the generation before us, right? It's the more moral one. It's the more faithful one. It's the more ethical one. The more righteous one. We, I think, we all kind of have a tendency to romanticize that, um, and maybe to some extent that that would be true. But I think what is probably more true um, is that the arenas the environments that wickedness makes its home tends to shift and change from generation to, generation to generation to generation to generation. And there is some connection between those things, but wickedness kind of becomes, and godlessness from generation to generation kind of becomes more like a moving target than it, than it is something that didn't exist in one generation and did exist in another generation because what we'll see from Paul's words here is that even from even even built into the very nature and character of God is a response to the wickedness and godlessness of the world I meaning and so so even built into the one who created the world who was there at the laying of its foundations was a what was a, um, was a predetermined response to the wickedness that existed. So it's not like somehow, some way, just in one, one generation just totally screwed it up and set us on a wrong path, right? But no, that built into the fabric of sin itself is a wickedness and a godlessness that God himself is endeavoring to address. And what Paul does... In the latter portions or the the beginning portions of the whole letter to the Romans and in the latter portions of Roman chapter one Romans chapter one specifically is he outlines a few indications that wickedness and godlessness is on the rise. That it's not actually slowing down, that we're not actually good people who are gradually improving as we become more ethically and morally superior to the generation before us. But that that actually, there's a a marked and precipitous downfall of our morality and that you can see it in the ways that people suppress the truth of God, reject the truth of God, and worship themselves. And so in Romans chapter 1, this is the essential argument. Paul lays out that there's somewhat of a pattern of wickedness and godlessness growing, okay? Um, and additionally, he begins to describe the way that God himself responds to the ever-increasing wickedness of the world. What is the way that God responds? Because we want God to respond. It seems right that God would respond to it. What's interesting here is that if we look from our um, from our scripture last week is that something was revealed to humanity in verse 17. That, that it says that God in Jesus Christ revealed righteousness. Romans chapter 1 verse 17, right? For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so it, it comes as, I don't know, maybe a shocker, maybe not, because most of us, if you have your Bible in front of you, again, another important reason to have a Bible in front of you is you have, a, you have a main heading in between verse 17 and 18, right? And you think, oh, wow, this is a completely different section of Scripture dealing with a completely different topic, right? But to put something like a heading right in between verse 17 and 18 it it kind of robs us from the literary punch of this section of scripture where Paul back to back reveals or tells us two things that God reveals next to each other he reveals the righteousness of God in Jesus right but then over here he reveals something else something very different he reveals his wrath. In verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, it says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the godlessness and wickedness of those who suppress the truth by their own wickedness. Now, um, this is maybe a little bit of a caricaturization, uh, but I think it holds water, is that uh, the world... And also the church, right? Um, have uh, we have we have leaned into in a really significant way the attributes and character of God that um, makes us warm and fuzzy, right? We lean into. Everyone wants to hear a sermon on the compassion of God. Everyone wants to hear a sermon on the mercy of God. On the grace of God, on the gentleness of God, um, and uh, and if if that's any like if that if that resonates with you, right, it should tell us something about maybe the portions of Scripture that we have maybe choose, chosen to read very quickly over, right, that we have not let take root in our own heart because. Because they do demand something of us. They do require something of us. And when we read a portion of scripture like Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and we hear that the wrath of God is being revealed against all of the wickedness and godlessness of those who suppress the truth of God, we have to reckon with the reality that we may be among the wicked when we suppress the truth of God. That we may we may be we may we may be participating in that movement. I think that if I were to talk a little bit about um, you know the kind of like sociological, psychological, spiritual dimensions of our really strong willingness to avoid conversations about wrath and God in the same question is not that you and I really deep down have an expectation that God would just be some soft marshmallow man in the sky, right? But that it would be that somewhere, and in many, and in many cases, a lot of different places in our lives, right? We have wrongly associated and compared a human being to the god of all creation. And there have been times where someone in our lives, it's usually someone who's in authority, someone who is meant to love us and protect us and watch over us and keep us safe. Sometimes it's our fathers, sometimes it's our mothers, sometimes it's a teacher, sometimes it's a pastor or a religious leader have been in a position or a relationship with you and have at one time or another, their humanity has been fully on display. And they have gotten really, really angry, and they have lost their temper, and they have lost their cool, and they have flown off the handle, and it has created a discontinuity in us about what it means to be angry, what it means to be to have wrath or fury or rage or anger. And we wrongly compare and, um, um, and and maybe wrongly associate the anger of man that has been expressed towards us with the wrath of God that is meant to be expressed towards wickedness. And so, when we talk about the wrath of God, all we can think about is the person that was supposed to love us, but got so angry and furious at us that they made us that they that it became demeaning, that it became emotionally unsafe, that it became spiritually or physically unsafe. Where 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 something has happened in us, and we're like, oh my gosh, I remember when my dad got really when he was full of wrath. I can't um, that that's how God is. But that's not actually what wrath is here in Scripture, as, as Paul explains it. And it's certainly not as it relates to, to God. We need to, we need to ask the Lord to help us separate our experience with sinful human beings from our knowledge and understanding of him so that we may get a more clear picture of who he actually is and why it's declared that he He. He responds and reveals his wrath, among other things as well. Uh, wrath here is a is a settled and abiding condition that is rightly aimed and targeted at the bullseye of wickedness in the world. Wrath is a controlled posture of response not a fly off the handle reaction when something doesn't go his way when he doesn't like something that happens the wrath of God is a response to the reality of wickedness not a reaction because he missed the meal and needs a nap okay You understand the difference there. And if we think about it this way and we understand it this way, I think everyone would agree, even at the base level of belief in God, that if there is a God in heaven, and if he is incalculably good, and if he is pure holiness and pure glory, that it would be right to assume that he would react wrathfully against wickedness, against that which is completely opposite to his character. Wrath becomes an understandable response of the glory of God in the midst of a world that is wicked and godless. We're okay with understanding, I think, the wrath of God in those terms and that is indeed how we should understand it. Okay? It is how we should understand it. In fact, it's what we would expect. That he would do just that. What we often don't add into that equation <laughs> is that you and I can fall into wickedness. Is that, is that we can become a part of the wickedness and godlessness that the wrath of God is revealed against. And Paul, Paul talks here about, what, the, about what, what some of the ways in which we actually nurture wickedness and godlessness in our hearts and in our lives. It's If you want to call it this, it's, um, it, is, uh, it was a proclamation to the church in Rome, but it should be a warning to you and I Okay, so um, if we look on what is is the godlessness and wickedness that the wrath of God is being revealed against? What is Paul saying? If Paul says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness, what is the godlessness and wickedness that's happening that the wrath of God is coming against? I, w- I want to know that because uh, gee, by golly, do I want to avoid it, right? I do not want to be, I do want, not want to be among those who are considered godless and wicked. Because I ain't got time for the wrath of God, man, you know what I'm saying? Um, so we have two main things here, okay? It's really actually pretty simple. The first thing is that God's wrath will be revealed against those who suppress the truth of God. That God's wrath is going to be revealed against those who suppress the truth of God. Um, this is very clearly outlined in your text this morning. Chapter 1, 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the godlessness and wickedness of those who, listen, su- suppress the truth by their wickedness. Listen, okay, so now we're going we're gonna to be, Paul's going to walk us into now, okay, what is, the, what is the truth that is being suppressed here? What is the nature of the truth claims that that people are actively suppressing that is leading to wickedness and godlessness? Verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Um, I have five kids. They're they're growing in their emotional and their spiritual and their physical maturity and as you know um, those of you who have been around a child for more than a day right is is this is that um, there's there's a few things that you don't have to teach a child one of the things that you don't have to teach them is how to lie and cover up the truth right you don't have to teach them that it's like it, it exists within them, right? And not only does it exist within them, but, but they will go to extraordinary lengths to make sure that the truth stays like, like they're holding down a beach ball under the pool, right? Like they're trying to hold it underwater, but it's got Crisco all over it, Right? So like they're struggling to hold it underwater, but it's just like the truth is just come pop, 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 coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up, right? The idea here of suppressing, suppressing the truth is this idea of taking what is, what is known at its most basic level and pushing it deep down into the caverns of disbelief. The idea of suppression here is the continual and aggressive striving against the truth. And what Paul uh, what Paul asserts here is that what mankind holds down underneath the water is the basic knowledge of the majestic and transcending power of God as both creator and sustainer of all things there is a there is an active suppression of the understanding that there is a god in heaven to whom we are accountable to because we are created and he is creator that we are not him actively seeking to suppress what has clearly been made known in the fabric of all creation. Paul says that it is, you know, paraphrasing Paul, it is as clear and plain as it possibly could be that there is a divine God with eternal power. Is clearly known that things are evident and obvious in the very reality of creation itself. That these things may be invisible according to the other ways that we see God acting and showing up and working in our lives and in creation, right? But it is not. Invisible when it comes to simply recognizing even the complexity and divinity and power of the creation that you and I each exist in and enjoy every single day. What are the things that are undeniable according to Paul, according to the scripture, undeniable about God? We see them in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. Did you ever think about God in this way? That he has visible qualities and that he has invisible qualities? Right? His visible, like for instance, a visible quality of God is his righteousness. A visible quality of God is his grace incarnated to us in Jesus Christ. A visible quality of God could be his power manifested in our healing and our salvation. And there are also kind of invisible qualities of God that, that sit at the foundation of who he is but are not made manifest in the world, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And what Paul says is that these invisible qualities, things like his eternal power and his divine nature... That even though they are invisible according to the manifested presence of God in our world, that they are perfectly clear and available to be seen by simply opening your eyes and being unwilling to suppress the truth that is right in front of your face. That this thing did not come about by chance. That there is, there is nothing here that is by accident. I certainly know that I didn't create it. I certainly know that he didn't create it. I certainly know I'm not a monkey. I never have been, and I never will be. Right? But an active suppression of the truth begins to call into question even the most basic foundation of the nature and character of a God who is eternal and a God who is powerful. It seems so innocent to just ask honest questions. But as Paul will show us, and I think as the trajectory of the Scripture here shows us, is that the suppression of the truth is um, not just an honest question, and it's not a and it's not benign. that it is the beginning of a malignancy that destroys belief and magnifies wickedness and godlessness in our lives. These things are clearly seen and understood, Paul says, as we look at the world and how it was made. Yet some still do not, Believe, choosing still to assume that there must be some other way or design of creation to exist in all its complexities other than it coming from the eternal power of the one who is divine. It simply can't come from that, so it has to be something else. A suppression of the truth. And listen, this is a, Paul's not even asking much of people here. Paul's not even asking much of people to to see the created world and to recognize that there is a divine God with eternal power. That's a very low theological bar, is it not? Paul's not even saying, hey, look, if you can't look at the complexity of the creation and understand the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ." on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit of him through faith, then you're doomed. Paul's not even getting into the complex nature, the seemingly complex nature, of our belief in the atonement of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. He's just saying, hey, look, don't suppress the truth by believing the most basic thing that there is to believe about a god at all is that he is divine and he has and he has eternal power. Like, get the easiest thing done first. Don't hold down the easiest thing to believe because the rest of it's going to become really difficult. Talk about carrying crosses and dying to yourself and serving and loving people that you don't like. Like, you're in for it if you can't even get this one. And so we're, And so, when he gets to that point, he's like, hey, look, humankind is without excuse. We are without excuse to recognize the eternal power, the eternal nature and divine power of God. We are without excuse. It is written on the fabric of absolutely everything in this world. But their refusal to see their refusal to believe is a suppression of what has been made obvious and known in the created world. And it is the first step into wickedness and godlessness. They stuff down and hold down that which creation screams is self-evident. Here's a question maybe that I want you to carry with you through the, through the week. This will be in the, the weekly discipleship um, button on your, on your, um, on your app. Question for reflection, are there, ask yourself this question, are there places in my life where I am actively suppressing the truth of God's work, the truth of God's voice, the truth of God's conviction, the truth about God even himself? Am I I actively pushing down trying to hold under the water the conviction of God that he is drilling into my heart through his word. The presence of God's voice saying, do this, don't do that. Wow, that's, that's a really loud voice. I don't really like to hear it. Let me keep it under the water. Right? Suppressing the truth of God's active work in your life is the beginning of wickedness and godlessness and the wrath of God is revealed against the heart of those who would suppress the truth of God with their own self-centered idolatry that says, I know better. God's wrath is revealed not just against the Suppression of truth, but God's wrath now, right? Listen, is revealed against the rejection of truth. Not just like, oh, I'm going to try and keep it quiet. I I can just pretend like I don't know. I don't see. I don't see anything, right? Don't see it. But now Paul takes it a step further and says here in verse 21, For although they know God, so now we're talking about people who know. Know better. They get it. For although they know God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise they became fools and listen this is is extraordinarily important they exchanged the glory of God of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles a rejection of what is already known to be true they know God they got that part down They understand his divine quality. They understand his eternal power. They have instead chosen to say no to that which they already understand. There is a recognition of who God is, but their lives are not projected in worship towards him. Paul says that they do not glorify him, nor do they thank him. And so their thinking has become futile or the word here means empty without any character or quality to it to it and their foolish hearts are darkened see the word foolish here we think of it and we think of the word as being like you're a fool you're dumb you're not smart Right, but in in um, in Jewish use, the word fool, and this is the reason that Jesus in the Gospels was said, "Hey, you call a person fool," right? He he warned against calling people fools because because foolish to them was not a judgment of a like how intelligent you were; it was a it was a proclamation of the emptiness of someone's moral character meaning that they were debased without any sense or notion of god within them at all that they had that they were empty of any of any form of righteousness or morality and so their foolish hearts became darkened. the, The absence of any sense of morality, it took their heart and took it from something that was beating with the heartbeat of God within them and darkened it and turned it to stone. Immorality gradually seeped into their hearts and darkened it to the point that their mere knowledge of God was no longer enough to sustain a life lived in worship of God. That there was this sense: well, we we walk in a well. I know God, I know God, but as I just walk in a knowledge of God, immorality gradually seeps in and seeps in and seeps in and seeps in. And seeps in to a point now where it's no longer gradually seeping in and just the mere knowledge of God is not protecting me from the immorality of my action. And so the gradual seeping in of immorality has created an emptiness of my heart that has now darkened it. And what we're going to see in a moment, almost eternally so, And so what does that lead to? What does the darkened heart lead to? The darkened heart, it says, leads to an exchange. We willingly exchange one thing for another. Where God once sat, even if he sat there in an intellectual sense, knowing God is divine, he has eternal power, he sits on the throne, right? He is God, I am not. Where once God sat, Now, we're doing the whole Indiana Jones scene, right? The Temple of Doom, right? Gets the bag of sand, the gold idol here, right? And he's like, you with me? No? Some of you? All right, go watch it, it's a good movie. All right, Right? where where he exchanges, exchanges one one god for another, one idol for another, right? In order to remain safe. Turns out that we cannot exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like man and birds and reptiles and animals without putting ourselves in extraordinarily grave danger. So what do we see in their life? An exchange happens. Idols begin to rise up and take a place of prominence in the life of those that reject the truth. They claim wisdom, but they actually become foolish, and you can see it in their lives. What do we see in their lives? Well, we see an abandonment of what is known and what is better. God is divine and he is powerful for what is man-made and what is absolutely preposterous exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and reptiles and animals. He perverts his own life by worshiping insulting images, worshiping what is comfortable to him, what requires nothing of him. In fact, he worships himself we have exchanged the glory of god for idols to made to be made like the image of man man people back then were so dumb <laughs> right who who in their right mind knowing god and knowing who he is would make the intentional decision to worship something that was man made <laughs> glad glad we have progressed beyond that, right? Listen, the core of idolatry is not the worship of something that is man-made. The core of idolatry is to worship something that I have made. I'd be willing to bet that not many of you have little golden calves in your house. (laughs) Serious. But I'd be willing to bet that you have made idols in your own life that you worship and bow down to. Things that you have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for. Allowing it to be the main thing, the one thing, the only thing that determines the trajectory of everything else in your life. Your relationships, your schedule, your money, everything. It is the worship of something that is a creation of me that defines idolatry. Something that is comfortable to me. Something that demands very little of me. Idolatry embraces a me-centered perspective on all things in life. What I think, what I want, what is good for me, what I feel, what I need it is, the, it is at its base level the undervaluing of the immortal God and the overvaluing of my own self. And the question here for us, the question that I want you to carry this week is this. What bit of God's truth are you considering or already Just simply outright rejecting. This is important, okay? It usually goes something like this. I know that God's word says this, but I, a God made in my own image, believe this instead. I know that God desires that I do this but I a God, an idol, made in my own image, choose instead to do this it's a little bit easier, a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more socially acceptable, or I just plain want to because it feels good listen, when you actively reject the truth of God you slide into wickedness and godlessness and listen these next four verses are excruciatingly are an excruciatingly sober pronouncement of God's response in the here and now of our lives towards those who would both suppress the truth of God and reject the truth of God. Do not miss this. We see it in four separate places from verses 24 to verses 28. Okay? We see this phrase. Starting at verse 24. God, therefore, God gave them over. In their sinful, in the sinful desires of their hearts. In this example here, for Paul in Romans, it was that God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to to the sexual impurity of for the degrading of their bodies with one another. But it's not the only example that Paul uses. In fact, we have here, well, I have it on a slide for you, all of these four verses kind of packed in together, so you can see the thrust of them all, right? God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. Paul repeats this phrase three separate times in four verses to make sure that the listener did not miss this point, that as we suppress the truth of God and as we reject the truth of God, that the Spirit of God has a limit for how long he will strive against our sinfulness before he removes his grace of protection and our hearts are given over to the very thing that we actually want, which is the life of sin. There becomes a point where God says, you want it? It's yours. Take it. And we choke on it. And it kills us. The truth here is that as they willfully suppressed and rejected the truth of God and exchanged the glory of God for a lie, that God, get this, that God in his grace and in his love gave them over to the very things that their hearts wanted. What are you talking about? How is that grace? And how is that love? Listen, God is not about, I can say this no 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 more clearly or simply. God is not about to force you into intimate, loving fellowship with him. Not about to do it. Because because the the, the, forceful, the forcefulness of being in relationship with God is not a relationship that is built on love, right? It's built on power. It's built on coercion. No, you're going to do this. You're going to act like this. You're going to love me because I say so. Does God have the power to force us into relationship with him? Yes. Would anyone say that a relationship that is forced has as its foundation love? No. At all. So we have one of two choices, right? You can serve a forceful, um, abusive type of God that makes you do things that you don't want to do, and you can remain righteous, or God, in his grace and love, can say, I love you so much, I give you the freedom to choose something other than me. The same way in which we express love to our spouses, right? I know that my wife loves me because she has the freedom to choose to not love me. The freedom to choose is the Proof of the evidence of love. It started as this precipitous destruction of their entire lives. God allows men and women to go down into the depths as far as they desire. And his wrath in the moment is shown as the removal of his restraining power of sin in their lives. Here's a question for reflection. We're going to kind of end with this and maybe one more scripture verse, all right? Question for reflection is this. What sin, and this isn't just like an individual sin, like a moment, right? But but what pattern of sin? What heart condition? What posture of my spirit have I normalized or rationalized in my life that I once found to be despicable. There was a time where I looked upon my sin and it was disgusting to me because the Spirit of God was working conviction in my heart, right? But over the time of both suppressing and rejecting the truth of God, I have found ways to normalize the thing that I once despised, to rationalize the thing that I once despised, to make sense of, to give an excuse for the thing that I know is despicable to the heart of God, and now I no longer see it as detestable. Beware. Because when sin is no longer detestable, God is beginning to remove God is God is beginning to remove his restraining power in your life and you are on the path to being given over to the sin that your heart so easily desires Pastor Luke will preach on these coming verses here in the next uh, the next week or two. Uh, but recognize that the darkening and hardening of our hearts is the um, is the temporary here and now version of God's wrath being revealed. His restraining power that has ke- that has kept us restrained from just totally diving into the pool of our sin. You, you get that, right? Do you understand that the grace of God is so tremendous that the, he actually does he actually does give restraining power to keep us from diving headlong into the thing that would destroy us? Until we have suppressed the truth and rejected the truth for so long that he's finally like, I'm done trying to stop you from doing the thing that you want to do. Take it. All right? But listen, that's his removal of his restraining power is the wrath that is revealed in the right now, okay? But, but the wrath of God will be revealed finally and decisively against all wickedness and godlessness on what Paul calls the day of the Lord, which we've talked about in a series before, two series ago, right? About the coming of Jesus on the day of the Lord. He says it in Romans, in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. He says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up the wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Now understand... That God, we know this from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not willing that, or wanting that any should perish, but that all would repent and come to know him to eternal life. Right? But that there is a decided moment where the bill has become due on the day of the Lord. And the wrath of God will be revealed against all the wickedness and godlessness that has not been repented of in salvation through Jesus Christ. It is my prayer, church. It is my prayer that as, that as we recognize the, our, our own tendency to devolve into wickedness and godlessness, that instead of suppressing and rejecting the truth, that we would glorify and magnify the truth of God in the ways, the ways in which we live. How we love one another. How we love an unbelieving world. How the extent to which we will forgive one another. I will not forgive them. You don't know what they've done to me. How long are you going to keep that uh, beach ball under the water? Right? How long are you going to suppress the truth of God's demand that, 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 that the level of our forgiveness from him is co-equal with our forgiveness of others? Think about the person you're so unwilling to forgive right now and the anger that you have towards them, right? Now, translate the same heart and spirit from the the own depth of your soul into how God is interacting with you in your sin that you're asking him to forgive you of. It is the same For in the same measure in which we forgive others, God will forgive us. The measure of our forgiveness better be total, complete, and immediate, without strings attached, keeping no record of wrongs whatsoever, because that is love. And if at every turn all we can do is suppress the truth of God and reject the truth of God, let me tell you, let me warn you, loved ones, your heart is turning dark and hard. And the Spirit of God will not strive with you towards righteousness forever. The bill will be paid, the bill will be called due. Have the worship team come back up. Listen, one of these one of these important verses here from our um, from our uh, scripture this morning, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile futile and foolish. Listen, as we go into this next part of our service, we have an opportunity to reject the condemnation that is placed upon those who reject the truth. By saying, in this moment, we recognize God for who he truly is. And we will respond by giving him an offering of glory and thanks in our worship. That is what our worship is, brothers and sisters. It is an offering to the God whom we know deserves glory and thanks for who he is. And so let us rise together and glorify the God that is worthy of our praise. Lord, you are merciful and mighty. Lord, you are divine and have eternal power. Lord, all glory and honor and thanks be given to you and your Son, Jesus Christ, who dwells in our hearts by faith. Amen. Amen. Conduit. You are loved. Have a great week and we will see you next time.